This is Hammond, and there's no Jessica today, and you're listening to the Friendly Atheist Podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast and support the show. If you give $5 a month, no ads on any of your episodes. Jessica's not here because she's out of town, and we figured... I'll just go at it alone today. I actually did have an interview scheduled. It unfortunately fell through. So what the heck? I'll just try to do everything myself today and we'll see how badly this fails. It is very hard to do this show single-handedly when you're used to having a co-host for so long, but that's okay. Let me start. I'm going to try to run through as many of these stories as I can and just talk my way through them as best I can. And I want to start with what's going on in Oregon this week. There is a man named Eric Osterberg who basically had the job of delivering a task force report to the city council of Klamath Falls in Oregon. And so, again, last year when there were all those protests in the streets, there was a need for people to discuss how the city had handled those racial justice protests. And the city council decided, let's create an equity task force to see what our city needs to do, what we can do better, things like that. Totally sensible idea. And the guy they had heading up this task force was Eric Osterberg, who is an assistant to the city manager uh, and a guy who has a history of understanding these topics as well as anyone. And so, uh, just FYI, he is gay, he is black. And in the city in Klamath Falls in Oregon, that is not just a minority. We're talking about a very small percentage of the population on both of those characteristics. So, he certainly stands out and he knows it. But none of that was relevant, right? He was going to give this report to the city council earlier this week. But at the beginning of the meeting, and as far as I can tell, this was not captured on video, even though they had the city council meeting uh, available online. Before the meeting started, Eric Osterberg noticed that someone in the audience was kind of glaring at him menacingly, and he was holding what appeared to be a stone. And this guy said to him, oh, so you think we're all racist? You think you're the second coming of Christ? And he also accused Osterberg of spreading HIV and AIDS and calling him blasphemous, presumably because he's openly gay. And the man allegedly said to Osterberg, you're a sinner and you need to be stoned. That's why I brought this stone. And here's the thing. That man was taken out of the room. It it just so happened that the police chief was in the building that day and no other cops were available. The police chief escorted that man out. He also said later he didn't have just cause to arrest the man, which is another issue. I mean, if that sort of straightforward direct threat isn't enough to do something, I don't really know what is. I mean, are we waiting for the guy to throw the stone? But... When it came time a few minutes into the meeting for Osterberg to deliver his uh, final report from the Equity Task Force, I want to quote to you, uh, I want to quote you what he said, because I thought for a guy who just went through that, that threat, the fact that he could say all this with, with a straight face and as professionally as he did was really impressive. Here's what he said. Before I start on this presentation, though, I want to just talk about something that just happened in this chamber just at the start of the meeting. 
There was an individual who brought a rock to this meeting, proceeded to call me a sinner for being gay, accused me of spreading AIDS here in the community, accused me of blasphemy, and also of trying to say that I'm the second coming of Christ. And I just want to start the meeting off kind of pointing to you that just having a conversation, a simple conversation about racism in our community, is gaining that level of violence, that threat of violence. And then you know what? He just kind of proceeded with the report. And it's amazing to me that this guy could just, I'm not saying he brushed it off, but the fact that he could just say what happened and then move on to the business at hand, even though that's just a, I don't know, batshit crazy thing to do to the guy is just incredible to me. And it's the sort of, you could tell from listening to him giving that speech that he's clearly dealt with this sort of bigotry before from religious conservatives, from bigots of all stripes. And he maintained his composure and went on with his report. And just so in case you're curious, he is actually, uh, Eric Osterberg is taking on a new job. He's actually moving to Ferguson, Missouri very soon to take over the role of their city manager. And that's a place where I have no doubt he'll be uh, well-received and appreciated instead of just threatened for doing his damn job. So just an incredible thing to have happen today. And the fact that it got so little coverage, maybe because that threat wasn't on video and because when he talked about it, he wasn't screaming about it. He just kind of said it matter-of-factly. Uh, It deserves a lot more attention than it's getting. Just incredible that anyone has to deal with that. Let me go on to a story involving Ravi Zacharias. You all remember this guy. This is a guy who is a Christian apologist. He is now dead. He died last year. Mike Pence, at the time, the vice president, spoke at his funeral. And uh, for decades, this guy was one of the preeminent people defending Christianity from, you know, quote unquote, an intellectual standpoint. And what we found out last year is this guy was a sexual predator. And it wasn't, there wasn't just one victim. This is a guy who had a side hustle where he ran massage parlors, but he paid multiple massage therapists using donations to his ministry, allegedly demanding sex from a few of them. Uh, The women later said he inappropriately touched us. He exposed himself to us. He also spiritually abused women who trusted him so they wouldn't speak out against him. And we've talked about him on this podcast before. A lot has been written about it. But basically, uh, the evidence of his bad behavior, his arguably criminal behavior, was so overwhelming that even his own family, people who help him run the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, even they were like, yeah, we, we realize this does not look good for any of us. The RZIM, his ministry, they announced earlier this year, back in March, that they're just going to rebrand because they do not want his name associated with their mission of spreading the gospel. And a lot of the people associated with the group have since walked away. They've either said, we, uh, the leadership of RZIM, knew what he was doing, or at least didn't keep tabs on the guy in a way any responsible group would have done. There was no oversight. This abuse had been alleged for many years before he died. And what did they do? They didn't take any serious action. So some people left when they got a report saying, no, he totally did this stuff. 
some family members. I mean, they're late to the party, but they finally recant, uh, repented for having any role in this. And by the way, in recent weeks, the ministry's president apologized publicly to everybody, just saying like, yeah, th- this was effed up. The heads of the Ravi Zacharias Institute, which was like their, their academic training center, they, that person, the two of them, husband and wife, they resigned in recent weeks. But now there is a new update to this because it, we're not done dealing with the fallout of everything he did. This week, there was a class action lawsuit filed against the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And it's actually filed by an NFL player for the Las Vegas Raiders. He's a tight end, Derek Carrier, and his wife, Dora. And they basically say, we gave $30,000 to this ministry because we believed they were spreading the gospel. We thought they were spreading the message of Christ. And that is why we were willing to give But it's pretty clear that our money was being used for reasons that had nothing to do with that mission. Here's an excerpt from their lawsuit. Since at least 2004, RZIM, led by Zacharias, has deceived faithful Christians, soliciting their financial support for its purported mission of Christian evangelism, apologetic defense of Christianity, and humanitarian efforts. Defendants, they're speaking about RZIM, built tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars from well-meaning donors who believed RZIM and Zacharias to be a faith-filled Christian leaders. In fact, Zacharias was a prolific sexual predator who used his ministry and RZIM funds to perpetuate sexual and spiritual abuse against women. And they later said, donated funds that basically the money they gave this ministry both supported an organization led by a sexual predator and financed Zacharias's sexual misconduct, including, but not limited to, financing massage spas where Zacharias engaged in sexually predatory behavior and paying hush money to the targets of his sex abuse. And again, I said this is a class action lawsuit. This is not just that husband and wife saying we want our money back. They're saying that thousands of people have donated to the ministry between 2004 and now. And they're saying those receipts, I mean, in 2014 alone, this ministry made $26 million. And they've said repeatedly, we rely on donor funding to do all the stuff we're doing. So if you go back to 2004, how much money are we talking here from people who thought it was going for a good cause, but only now realize they were duped, they were being lied to. Zacharias was using their money to help fund his actions. And again, this is a class action lawsuit. They are saying in the lawsuit, we want anyone who gave to this ministry between 2004 and February of 2021 when the ministry said, we're not going to accept donations anymore because uh, we got some shit going on. They want, they want anyone who's donated between that time to join the lawsuit or at least keep it open so that those who want to can join it. And they're asking for their money back and legal fees and whatever potential costs uh, you know, a judge or jury deems fit. And again, this is kind of incredible that they're saying, I mean... We thought we were doing good. We want this money back. But you know what? While this ministry is around with with as much money that it has, they're not satisfied with the idea of apologies and a rebranding that would allow the group to kind of hold on to all that 
cash they have in their reserves and use it, you know, theoretically for the mission when how much money was spent, you know, uh, shielding Ravi Zacharias from the backlash against all the predatory behavior. So I I don't know how successful that'll be. It's one of those things where I, maybe there's a legal case. You give your money to a nonprofit, you assume they're going to do, you're, you're going to help advance their mission. How much leeway do you get over, how do you prove that you gave this money and they purposely misused it without telling anybody? Because as far as we could tell, even a lot of the people in charge had no idea what they were doing with this money. They weren't purposely saying, sure, let's use this because he, you know, Ravi's a sexual predator and we got to stop anyone from finding that out. They were saying, oh, he's traveling. Oh, he needs extra hotel rooms. Oh, he needs to go to this spa to relax. I mean, it's all part of the business trip, I guess. So I don't know legally if this is going to be successful. But honestly, this feels like a death blow to the ministry itself, because no matter what they're doing, no matter how many people in leadership walk away from it, how many people apologize for what happened and swear they're going to do better in the future, however you can do that at this point, and even if they rebrand like some oil company that just had a big spill and they're like, if we just change our name, we could just start over, I don't think it's going to work. And this lawsuit could help strike a final blow to them, which Honestly, at that this point, maybe that's the best thing that could happen to this ministry. Just sue them out of existence so that we know none of these people who were ever qualified to run a ministry because we know what they were actually doing with their time and who they were protecting and how little oversight they had over where the money was going and who was spending it. Um, if they have to go out of business because this lawsuit takes them out of business, so be it. I mean, that's that's honestly the most Christian thing you could do at this point, right? In big quote hands, it's we're making sure no one gets hurt. We hurt By shutting down, they would be doing the world a service, and that would be a good thing for everybody. There is, I know the Olympics are going on right now, and I saw an article this week that honestly made me laugh, and I'm, I'll tell you who wrote it. It's a guy named Charles Pope. He is a pastor in Washington, D.C., a very conservative guy. Uh, I know the guy's name because he said last year people were cowering in fear of COVID, and then he caught COVID himself. And so I'm aware of this guy as a hypocrite, a conservative, who basically he's better known for being a right-wing mouthpiece than he is for being a priest. But, okay, fine, that, there's nothing unique about that. But he wrote an article this week where he talked about uh, watching the Olympics and witnessing something that he felt was a, quote, empty, dark, unrealistic, and dystopian experience, uh, unquote there. So, and he said it involved children. And I was like, oh, my God, what did these children do Because I've watched the Olympics on and off, and I honestly, I haven't seen children, minus like skateboarding, I haven't seen children involved, much less doing anything unconscionable. And I certainly haven't seen news coverage of any of that. So what is this guy talking about that's so traumatizing? And he keeps going and he says his biggest problem was that during the opening ceremonies, there was a children's choir and they sang John Lennon's song, Imagine. The one that says, you know, imagine no religion, imagine no countries, imagine, you know, above us only sky. And here's what Pope writes. 
While some just think of the song as pretty, the radical atheist slash globalist words are a direct attack on things central to the existence of any civilization. Lenin imagines, with approval, a world without God, religion, or country. In effect, no piety, no loyalties, and nothing worth dying for. He also dismissed the idea of heaven, hell, and more than implies that in religion, faith, and God are the source of violence, greed, and disunity. The song implicitly endorsed atheistic communism, or at least socialism, in its dream of no possessions. Imagine was perhaps the most secular and radical of popular songs ever written, dripping with contempt, deconstructionist, revolutionary, and reductionist, a Magna Carta for secular humanism and communism. Like, damn, I knew it was a good song, but I didn't realize it was that powerful. But of course, if you're listening to this and you know the lyrics of that song, you know that everything he's saying makes absolutely no sense. Like, at least when I hear the song and John Lennon says, you know, imagine no religion, he's not calling for the abolition of religion. He's kind of making a greater point, which is that, you know, there are a lot of things that divide all of us. What if we took the most divisive things in our world and did away with them? Wouldn't that be amazing because we would be more unified as, you know, a common humanity? That's the idea. It's not saying, you know, imagine no country, so let's get rid of borders. He's saying, you know, if nationalism wasn't a thing, we would be better off, which is hard to argue with. And Pope later even says in his article, and again, I know it's Pope and this is the Catholic uh, Church guy. It's not uh, the Pope Francis. This is the guy's last name. Pope also said, look at the irony of the lyric, imagine there's no countries sang during the Olympics. But that's not ironic. Because again, if you're giving the Olympics, which has a whole host of problems, but if you're looking at it in the best case scenario, yes, you have different athletes from different countries competing, but they're rooting for each other. I mean, you've seen it in some of the better events. You, you see people, yes, I want to win, but also, I'm, it's not the end of the world if someone else who's a great athlete also wins. It's supposed to be competitive and unifying, and that's theoretically what's amazing about the Olympics. It's not hypocritical to sing a song saying, imagine there's no countries at the Olympics, because it, the song isn't calling to do away with borders. It's saying, let's get rid of the division between us. That's not a problem. I mean, that's what the Olympics wants, too. Let's eliminate our divisions and come together in the spirit of competition for something, you know, that unites all of us, which is sports. I mean, no matter where you are from, you send your best athletes. Other countries will send their best athletes. Let's have a competition and show that, look, we can, we can fight in a good way. We can compete and we are all still supportive of the idea that sports unites us all, something like that. But, I mean, the song is a classic for a reason. It's not a classic song, imagine. It's not classic because it's calling for the end of religion or possessions or anything. It's saying, imagine if we got rid of the bad stuff. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, the fact that a guy could hear that song and think it's somehow wicked in the way this guy is talking about. I mean, you have to be deluded by conservatism or faith to see kids singing that song 
and watch that and think that is a problem that needs to be stopped. And by the way, I should add that it's not like the Tokyo Olympics is the first time kids have sung Imagine at the Olympics. They've done it for so many different opening ceremonies in previous years, at least I think three or four that I could find in recent memory. And you know what? The sky didn't fall after they sang it either. So I don't know what this guy is complaining about. Let me jump over to Louisiana. This is amazing. So Louisiana is just a very interesting state politically because it is in the deep south. It is surrounded by some very conservative states, Texas, Mississippi. God, I hope I got that right. Um, But their governor in Louisiana is John Bell Edwards. He is a Democrat. I mean, I think he's anti-abortion Democrat. He's a very conservative Democrat, but he is a Democrat. But also, the state's attorney general, Jeff Landry, is a pro-life conservative Christian. And whatever stereotype you're thinking right now, it fits, okay? And Louisiana is also one of the worst states in the country right now at getting people to take COVID seriously. Only 37% of people there are fully vaccinated. And Bell Edward, uh, John Bell Edwards, recently this week, he issued an indoor mask mandate. If you're inside somewhere, I don't care if it's a public place, like you got to wear a mask, which is a totally sensible thing to do right now with the Delta variant. Now, if you're part of the administration, if you're part of statewide leadership in this uh, state, you would think they're all on board with this. Let's try to protect people. Let's try to make sure as few people catch COVID and, and get really sick to the point where they have to go to the hospital about it. Jeff Landry is on a mission to make sure the opposite happens. Like, it's almost like he's taking joy from watching people suffer from the virus. And this week, after, uh, as John Bell Edwards was getting ready to issue this indoor mask mandate, it's clear that Landry was, like, sitting in his office trying to figure out, how can I sabotage this? And what he came up with is he wrote letters that were basically permission slips that you could download and, you know, fill in the blank with your name, and that would allow you to suggest, to say to an employer or an, uh, an administrator at your school, uh, I don't have to wear a mask. Why? Because I have a religious or philosophical exemption to it. And here is my form, written by the attorney general of my state, to say I don't have to do this. And by the way, first of all, that letter doesn't work. That's not, you don't just get to sign a letter and the state says, okay, I guess you're exempted now. Go ahead and infect everybody. Landry even said in a press release, like, you should not interpret my letters as legal advice. Which, to me, basically means he wrote these letters to just scare administrators, educators, employers into letting you not get vaccinated or wear a mask. I mean, just run free, spread the virus. It's a scare tactic. Because if it's not legally binding, then what good does it do? And here's what took me back by this. Like, everything I'm saying right now could apply to several states. Florida is really bad right now, not allowing certain mask mandates throughout the state. Texas is obviously really bad at this. But if you look at Landry's letter, this is the thing that stood out to me. When I read the letter that offers a religious exemption, it doesn't say something like, you know, my faith informs me that, you know, I don't have to listen to the government or whatever you think it would say. 
it's very clearly just catnip for Christian conservatives in the state. And I know that because he didn't even try to write a letter that Muslims could use or Jews could use, or certainly not atheists, certainly not anyone who's not a Christian. It's not for them. This is specifically for his evangelical base. Um, Here's just a little section of this letter. And again, I repeat, this is Landry's letter to allow you to get a religious exemption to the indoor mask mandate. Here's Landry. I believe that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that I am called to honor God in how I care for my body. See 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20. I believe that each person is created in the image of God. I also believe that people are relational beings and that these relationships mirror the relationship between God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. I believe Christians are called to communicate God's words and message of love to the world. Everything I just said, I I skipped over the other biblical references in there, but there are many. But none of that has anything to do with masks. Like, okay, fine, you think your Christianity means you have to interact with other people. Well, masks don't stop you from doing that. Christians are called to communicate God's words. Fine, do it with a mask on. Do it without a mask and stream it over Facebook or YouTube or whatever you want to do. Like, there's nothing in what I just read that contradicts or violates, you know, a mask mandate. It doesn't have to. And then Landry goes on. This is without any Bible verses, but this is what he says. And this is where he justifies why there should be a religious exemption to a mask mandate. I also write to state my religious objections to a mask mandate in our school. I do not consent to forcing a face covering on my child who is created in the image of God. Masks lead to antisocial behaviors, interfere with religious commands to share God's love with others, and interfere with relationships in contravention of the Bible. And let's just let's just discuss those for a second one by one. Masks lead to antisocial behaviors. They don't. They don't have to. I mean, if you don't want to talk to people, you don't have to talk to people, but that's not because of the masks. That's because of you. People who want to talk to people. I mean, I just finished a week where I was running a summer camp for teenagers. They all had to wear masks. They were talking to each other. They were fine. It wasn't the masks that were the problem. Uh, How do masks interfere with religious commands to share God's love with others? You can proselytize with a mask on. I mean, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. It's amazing to me that these same people who believe God is all-powerful, God can do anything, but if you stick a piece of cloth over your mouth, God disappears and can't defeat anything. God can't be shared. You can't mention God's name. Like, how weak is there God that a piece of cloth, you know, suddenly destroys all of Christianity Here I thought they were always scared of Satan and atheists who were very aggressive about it. No, all it took was a piece of cloth and their entire religion came crumbling down. And it says it interferes with relationships in contravention of the Bible. Again, how? I have no idea how a mask gets in the way of getting to know somebody, getting to be around them. You can be around them. Just wear a mask. It's not a big deal. So basically, this guy is citing Bible verses in justification of having a religious exemption. 
He just says, forget the Bible, like, my religion says you can't cover me up with a mask. I think it was implied. God created us in his image, and wearing a mask is somehow, you know, anti-God because we're covering up what God created. It's like, that's the same argument you could make against wearing a scarf in the winter or sunglasses in the summer. Like, if how Again, yeah, God created you, fine, if you believe that. I have no idea why a mask gets in the way of God, of people seeing God's creation somehow. It just, it's a dumb argument. And he's not doing it because he actually believes this stuff. He's doing it to posture politically. By the way, one thing I found really interesting is one of the verses he quoted uh, when he said, you know, I believe we are, uh, people are relational beings and that these relationships mirror the relationship between God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. He quoted the book of Philippians, um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Do you know what chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say? Again, this is what he's quoting to defend himself. Here's verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Which is what you do when you wear a mask and you get vaccinated. (laughs) You're basically telling the world, look, I'm safe, but I'm also taking care of you because I'm not going to be the one who catches it and then spreads this virus to you, even if there's a small chance of that happening or something. You get a vaccine to protect the people around you as well as yourself. You certainly wear a mask because on the off chance you are infected, you're not sending, you know, that respiratory virus into the world. There is an argument to be made that wearing a mask is the biblical thing to do because it's not selfish. It shows that you care for others. I know progressive Christians have made that exact argument before, that there's nothing inherently contradictory between mask mandates or vaccine mandates and whatever the Bible says. You could cherry pick whatever verses you want. But the point is, Landry here isn't just like, violating the Bible's commands. He's violating the verses he's citing to justify his stupidity here. And on top of that, I feel like this is a church-state separation issue because he's not really interested in creating a religious exemption form that anyone could use. He's just written one for Christians saying, yeah, use this. Give it to your principal. Give it to your superintendent. Give it to your boss. Uh, what if you're a Muslim and none of that stuff applies to you? I don't know. I guess you could fend for yourself. Jews can fend for themselves. I mean, he's a perfect example in my head of this guy who campaigned as a pro-life conservative who cares about life and, and liberty. And here's a, here is the same guy doing as much as he can to cause death unnecessarily. We know how to protect people in this pandemic, and he's saying, nope, to hell with that. I want to use everyone else's death to advance my own religious agenda. It's just the worst possible thing he could be doing right now. And I should say that, you know, reporters in Louisiana asked the Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards, like, what do you think about your attorney general spreading all this misinformation and, and pushing back against the mandates that, you know, Bell Edwards administration is setting. Here's what John Bell Edwards said. Did you hear a word that was set up here about what's happening in Louisiana? Referring to the rise in COVID cases. Do you give a damn? 
I've heard it said often, Louisiana is the most pro-life state in the nation. I want to believe that. It ought to mean something. In this context, it ought to mean something, which is a fair point. I mean, look, Bell Edward, uh, John Bell Edwards is not my favorite Democrat in the country by a long shot, but he's making a fair point here. If we call ourselves pro-life, then why are we doing things to hasten people's death? And the answer to that is obvious. Conservative Christians who make that argument don't care if their own negligence and ignorance leads to the death of other people. Your life doesn't matter to them. They only care about this fictional idea of freedom they have in their heads. And if whatever they want gets in the way of your life, they do not care about you. And I think what bothers me about that the most is that many of the people making those arguments aren't just public officials. Like, you could do so many other jobs. Why are you in a job where your your one job is to look out for the best interests of everyone you represent? But these people all go to churches, and they all go to churches where often they have these conservative pastors who know better, who know the importance of vaccinations and wearing masks, but those pastors will not call these people out on it. They will not say, you know, wear a mask or don't come to church. Watch it. Watch us from, you know, watch it on YouTube. Watch the sermon from home. Don't come here and hurt other people. They won't say that. They're too cowardly to tell the truth about the virus and the way to prevent the spread of it. Uh, And why? Maybe because they don't want to risk losing members or money. I don't know whatever their reason is, but not enough evangelical pastors are talking sense to their congregation about the importance and the necessity of vaccines. Or even if they do, they couch it in language that gives people an out. As if like, yeah, I mean, it's your choice. I I got the vaccine, but, but it's up to you. That doesn't help. Tell people to get it or they're not welcome at your church. Tell them, make some religious argument as to why not getting vaccinated is as much of a sin as these people like to pretend, I don't know, homosexuality is. They always know which verses to cite and how to use religion to get people riled up when it comes to, you know, LGBTQ people. But when it comes to, you know, just do the bare minimum you need to do to not make a pandemic worse to not spread a virus that hurts other people. They cannot seem to find any of the right things to say when it comes to that. It's just everyone involved in this. Landry's a public official. He should be doing better. But these pastors who are running these churches full of people who are doing the absolute worst things possible also aren't doing anyone a favor. It's just rot up and down the line. Um, And that might be a good segue to talk about Kent Hovind. I listen, this is a guy who is who's like a B-rated version of a creationist. You know how we make fun of Christian movies because they're never as good as the real thing. They just it's the lowest form of filmmaking imaginable. Kent Hovind is like that for creationists. I mean, we'll make fun of Ken Ham all the time, but that guy has a lot of money with his nonprofit and he's created the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. He puts his money where his mouth is, and, like, he's known for creationism. Kent Hovind is a convicted tax felon who runs this really crappy dinosaur adventure land theme park, which is like a low-budget attempt 
at the Creation Museum. It's like, it's sad within the subgroup of people who are also sad. Um, anyway, usually when I say anything about Kent Hovind, it's because he's making super embarrassing arguments in justification of creationism. Um, or because recently he filed like a half billion dollar lawsuit against the government, which failed, and now he's appealing and it's funny. Or he got out of prison after a tax fraud conviction only to be like driven home by Jim Bob Duggar. Um, or at Dinosaur Adventureland because it, he runs it like a little fiefdom and takes no security measures. A little child, a child drowned there like a year or two ago. And he didn't seem to, when he talked about it, he showed no remorse for it. He's, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically is like, well, that kid shouldn't have done that. All right, let's move on. Like, he's heartless in that sense. And now it's getting worse um, than, than any of the stuff before. And I know this because there is a former IRS appeals officer, uh, Robert Beatty. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he's also a longtime Kent Hovind watchdog. Because he, uh, I don't want to speak for Robert, but Kent Hovind, I'm not kidding when I say he runs this place like his own personal kingdom. He thinks he can run it like a king and he's, he doesn't have to pay attention to any government regulations, doesn't, I mean, clearly doesn't think he has to pay taxes on things. But Robert Beatty has been following this guy and the things he says during his live streams and the, the, the little uh, cinematic universe around this guy. And what's amazing, the thing that's happened in the past few weeks, I want to make sure I, I have this clear because it's kind of messed up. Uh, Kent Hovind was married to a woman for a really long time, and then he went to jail for tax fraud. That woman's name is Joe. I don't know if that's short for Joanne, Joanna, but it's Joe. Um, but after he got out of jail, so this is relatively recently, they got divorced. And you know what? I, I don't care about his personal life. Okay, so they got divorced. Next thing we know is Ken Hoven was dating somebody else. And then they got married. So he got married to his second wife. Again, I don't care. There's nothing that weird about that. But here's where it gets strange. Ken Hoven, like I said, doesn't think the government runs his life in any meaningful way. So at some point, him and that second wife decided to break up. They did not file for divorce with the state. On paper, then, they are technically still married. But spiritually, they broke up. Then Ken Hovind started seeing somebody else. Uh, and then they got spiritually married. But they were never legally married. And by the way, now they're broken up. So, if you can keep track of all that, there's a difference between the number of spiritual marriages this guy has been in and the number of actual on-paper legal marriages this guy has been in. So I'm going to refer to spiritual wife number th uh, three as, and on paper, she thinks she is wife number three, but she's not. Um, I know that's a lot. I hope that makes some sense. I'm not re-recording that. Um, but anyway, her name is Cindy, Cindy Lincoln, and she recently filed for an order of protection in secular courts saying, I need protection against Kent Hovind. I can't let that guy be around me. And in the paperwork she filed asking for that, she said, he wants to shut me up. He is dependent upon public opinion for his livelihood. 
I fear he will kill me to shut me up. And she also wrote in the request that the court step in and say, Ken Hoven, you can't come near her, and that is legally binding. If you do, we will arrest you. She said in that paperwork that one of Hoven's like, right-hand men stripped and trashed her rental property with his awareness, and that that same right-hand man threatened her with a concealed gun. And so she wrote in the documentation, she wants to, quote, keep Kent Hoven and his cohorts away from me and my home. Then she said she wants Ken Hoven to pay the medical bills for the injuries caused by him body slamming her. She said basically he physically abused her and she wants him to pay the medical bills. But also, let's step back for a second. This guy physically abused her? Do we know that? Is this just an allegation? Here's where it gets really amazing. Yes, he did physically assault her. And I know that because Kent Hovind recorded himself in that fight thinking this is going to protect me because, I don't know, this woman sounds insane and I want to make sure I ever, I'm just going to press the record button. And like, there's a link to the recording of their, an audio recording of their argument I listen to it because I'm a masochist like that. It's not for the faint of heart. It's it, insert trigger warning here. Um, it doesn't make Kent Hovind look good. I mean, she's crying. She's screaming. It's not good. I don't know why he thinks that's a recording that makes him look like he's innocent. So anyway, it sounds like he body slammed her. And by the way, uh, here's where I also was looking through this documentation she filed. In the filing, she says she's married to the guy. That's their status, and that's part of the reason she needs the courts to step in. They can do an order of protection when you're in a relationship with the person you need that protection from. And she says, we are in a relationship. We're married. But they're not married for reasons I explained earlier. And the reason that matters is because a week ago, on Friday, uh, what is that, July 30th or something, Kent Hovind's lawyer said, hey, judge, you can't issue this order of protection for two reasons. Because they don't have the type of relationship the state requires for this type of order because they would either need to be legally married or been dating for the past year. And the truth is, they were not legally married and they were not dating. But they're not legally married because Kent Hovind says we're spiritually married, and that counts. And the lawyer also said uh, this alleged incident occurred more than six months ago, and so if she's so worried about the guy, why didn't she file for the protection then and not now? And what the judge said is we do need to establish what type of relationship you have in order to decide if I can you know, sign off on this order of protection. That hearing is going to take place on August 12th. But notice that. He's saying, I need to figure out the, rel- the nature of your relationship because no one really seems to know what their relationship is. Are they married? Not according to the state. But if it's not that, then what is it? It's just weird. But um, I should point out that later on this week, uh, this is also from Robert Beatty, who is that watchdog, He said he got his hands on court documents that showed Kent Hovind was arrested last Friday, like actually arrested and charged with domestic violence in the third degree. 
and it has to do with that supposed body slamming incident. The affidavit that was filed, uh, this is by the, st- uh, by the government, says Hovind injured Cindy Lincoln by, quote, throwing her to the ground. It says that. It says Kent Hovind paid $1,000 bond, and he was right back to Dinosaur Adventure Land that night to record new live streams. Um, I should say, even a local newspaper called the Monroe Journal wrote in a headline on Wednesday this week, Dr. Dino, uh, Dr. Dino, arrested Friday. Like, he's on the front page of the paper for assaulting a woman. And again, I, I just want to say, I, I watched the live stream that he did, and it had a few, it had things like the uh, graphic that said, squeaky clean, like there's nothing to see here. He made a point of emphasizing how everyone's innocent until proven guilty without actually referencing why he's talking about this stuff. And here's the thing, because I've watched Hoven long enough to know how this works with him. He's saying innocent until proven guilty. Well, even if there's a guilty verdict about this criminal assault charge, a guilty verdict would just lead to someone like him saying the justice system is broken or they're persecuting good Christian men and that he'll just, his followers will never see him as a bad guy. And I think this is why I care about this because, you know, I, I don't necessarily care about these people's personal lives unless they're in a position of power and they're doing something ridiculously hypocritical. I think it's important if a, you know, pro-life uh, public figure, pro-life senator happened to pay for someone's abortion and tried to keep it a secret. I think that's hypocrisy worth pointing out. Otherwise, if it's your personal life, eh, I don't think it's anyone's business. I'm not necessarily sure why that matters. But So why does this matter here? Because Kent Hovind is well-known among creationists, and he does these live streams every day where he dissects Bible verses on his YouTube channel. Um, and he's basically trying to use Dinosaur Adventure Land to brainwash people into thinking creationism is true. And we know that because the Bible is true. And you got to accept the Bible because it's the only way you can be pure and good and moral and just. And all of that stuff is linked together in his mind. Christianity and scientific integrity and morality, they're all lumped together. And yet here is a perfectly out there public example of Kent Hovind, the king of his of his little fiefdom here, saying that you got to believe in the Bible in order to be good. And here he is assaulting a woman that he was dating, regardless of what their relationship is, to the point where the woman is scared enough that she needs a secular judge to step in because she fears for her life. And yet I watch these live streams every day and there are people coming in from out of town because they want to meet this guy. They want to see Dinosaur Adventure Land. They want to hear what he has to say. They have either no idea any of this is going on or they don't care that all of this is going on. And that is horrifying. And again, I think it's worth pointing out because every, it's, it's kind of like Roy Moore, the former Senate candidate. This guy was a former Supreme Court Uh, chief justice in Alabama. And yet, if you ever mention Roy Moore's name today for any reason, like he was a lawyer representing this guy or something, you can't do that without saying he's an alleged pedophile because the evidence is pretty damning, but it happened long ago. So it's hard to get justice in that sense. But you can't mention Roy Moore without mentioning the worst things he ever did in his life. And I think the same has to go for Kent Hovind. There's so much to make fun of the guy for because he says a lot of stupid stuff. But I am, I hope, and I hope I hold myself to this, 
you can't mention the man's name from now on without mentioning that he's also a guy who body slammed a woman he was dating slash married to in big quote hands. This is how he treats people he's close to, people he supposedly loves. He is a bad human being. And everyone who ever mentions him needs to make sure that is clear to everybody. Okay, I'm going to move on to a different story. Uh, this, this is something much lighter. It involves child marriage. In North Carolina, this is the law as it stands. In North Carolina today, in 2021, if you are a 14-year-old, you are legally allowed to get married. But only if, like why would a 14-year-old need to get married? Because someone raped her. Because she's pregnant. If you are a pregnant 14-year-old, you are legally allowed to get married. What if you're 15? Well, you can also get married if you're pregnant. What if you're 16? Oh, you don't need to be pregnant anymore. You are still allowed to get legally married if you get your parents' permission, which means a lot of these like fundamentalist Christian families who think, yep, you're good, you're 16, it's time for you to get married to however old your husband is and move on and start bearing children of your own. That's a thing that's legal in North Carolina. It's disgusting. It's disturbing. I don't think I need to explain why. North Carolina is one of two states. Uh, Alaska is the other one. It's, those are the only two states where 14-year-olds are allowed to get married. Um, most states, however, I think only six states prohibit child marriage. Every other state does allow certain children under the age of 18 to get married. It's this horrific practice. Like, they can't drink, they can't vote, they can't fight in a war. But okay, fine, you can wed yourself to someone else for the rest of your life when you're 16 or 17 in other states. So, again, child marriage is horrifying, and in North Carolina, which that almost surprised me. I didn't think North Carolina would be the state where this sort of thing is allowed, but it is. And here's the thing. There are lawmakers that are trying to fix that. In fact, a Republican state senator named Danny Britt filed a bill that would have eliminated... He filed, Sorry, as my phone alarm goes off. He filed a bill that would have eliminated child marriages, and it would have set a minimum age of 18 for anyone who wants to get married. Uh, you know, as far as controversial legislation goes, this is not one of those things. This should be totally unanimous. Who is, a, who is for child marriage, right? And yet, he said to reporters, like, it didn't go anywhere. His bill did not get anywhere. And here's what the uh, newspaper said. Britt said his colleagues have told him they support the intent behind his original bill draft, which would have banned all child marriages, but couldn't vote to pass it because they either married as minors, married a minor, or know someone who married as a minor. In other words, either they were child married, they married a child, or they know someone who was married as a child, and, you know, they don't want to support a bill that you know, in hindsight, would have made that illegal. They don't want their relatives to be thought of as criminals. And basically, they're afraid of hypocrisy on this. Like, 
that's insane that it's not just one person we're talking about here, but enough of this guy's colleagues in the legislature said, I can't support this bill because everyone would call me a hypocrite. Which, by the way, even if that's the worst thing that happens from this, who cares? Do it anyway. Like, if you know someone who had a child marriage, or you married a child, which is a whole different thing that I can't believe is not the focus of every political ad against them, like, how could you still support it after all these years? I mean, it should be insane to everybody that a 14-year-old girl could be sexually assaulted and raped But to some families, the solution to that, because abortion is not an option for them, the solution to that is eh, just get her married. That'll solve everything. And the state of North Carolina allows that as a reasonable justification for marriage. It's also appalling to me that a 16-year-old could theoretically be married to someone in their 40s or 50s. And it's also appalling that a 17-year-old to me who can't vote or drink, or be in the military for plenty of reasons, which maybe we could debate some of those things, but that they can legally commit themselves to another person for life with the state's blessing. Anyway, so that bill did not get anywhere. So Britt, the Republican, here's what he did. He said, fine, fine, fine. I will amend my bill to, I mean, we still got to eliminate child marriage, right? So let me fix this. Let's all agree that the minimum age should be 16, Okay, so, I mean, that's still not great, uh, but here's what he said. He said this amendment would say, no, if you're 14 or 15, I don't care if you're pregnant. You're still not allowed to get married because that's insane. And by the way, if you're 16 or, uh, if you're 16 or 17, you're only allowed to get married to someone who's at most four years older than you. So if you're 16, okay, you can marry a 20-year-old, but you can't marry some 50-year-old who thinks, all right, I'm going to have a 16-year-old bride, and that's totally normal. And here's the thing. That's not great, and I'm not even mad at this guy for amending his bill to say that because he's basically saying, okay, if you're not going to go along with my eliminate child marriage bill, can we at least tighten these rules a little bit to be in line with what other states have done? That amended bill did pass the state Senate, and then it just stalled out in the state House for, I think, the reasons he mentioned earlier, because a lot of legislators didn't want to think of themselves as hypocrites. And by the way, there was another separate House bill that would have eliminated child marriages, and that one barely budged as well. So they said, and the North Carolina State House said no to the original 14-year-old should not be allowed to get married bill, And they're not taking action on the, okay, can we at least say, let's just minimize it to 16? And they're like, no, we're not doing anything about that. So child marriage is still alive and well in North Carolina. And there is an amazing article about this uh, by Danielle Battaglia of the News and Observer in North Carolina. And she mentions all the things I just mentioned here about Brit and his his bills and the amendments. But really, the focus of her attention is on a woman who wants to remain anonymous, but she says she was the victim of child marriage. She was married off, I think, when she was 14. And she's one of the people who desperately wants this law to be fixed, not because it'll affect her, but because she suffered and she doesn't want other people to suffer like her. And she brings up religion in her personal story, 
the focus is not on religion here. I think she said she did go to church. Um, so religion played a role. I don't know if she had to do this shotgun wedding when she was 14 because of religion, but I, I kind of suspect that's the case. Um, but it, it really does take this kind of fundamentalist Christian thinking to think abortion is an absolute no if you're 14 and pregnant, but getting married would somehow make things right with God. I mean, listen, if you live in North Carolina, please call your representatives and tell them to take some damn action on the first bill or the amended bill, anything. Just get this passed. I mean, at this point, the only people who are refusing to support these bills have to be the people who, I mean, they're supporting child abuse at this point. What? There's no rational reason you should be against this, or at least I can't think of one that would say, yeah, let's lower the, let's raise the minimum age to get married to like 16. Can we all agree on that? And the fact that there are legislators who are like, can't go along with that for any reason. I mean, that makes no sense to me. It is, it's wildly insane for any, any bill. And I think that's a segue to let's talk really briefly about purity culture. Uh, There was an article published recently for the website Jezebel. It's written by a woman named Sarah Stankorb. And basically, she spoke to several women who grew up in evangelical Christian purity culture. And just to focus on a certain aspect of that, if you are raised in that environment, of course, you are taught that you should not have sex before marriage. But also, there is an implication that after you get married, sex is great and you can do whatever you want to with your spouse and everything is totally fine. I mean, the criticisms are kind of obvious there. The the people, the women, especially, who have spoken out as Christians saying purity culture is wrong, they kind of make it clear sexual sexual compatibility isn't a given, even if you're in love with somebody. And there are a lot of problems that could happen with sex that you are never told about growing up in that purity bubble. And they've spoken out about this. And we've talked a lot about uh, Joshua Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and how damaging that was to just go from, you know, being a kid to being in a courtship that leads to marriage. And you're just suddenly supposed to be in love because God ordained for you to, to jump from childhood to being a housewife or something. I mean, there's so many things wrong with purity culture. But what this article is about is about how these women were basically told there's like a magic formula to sex. And this is what their pastors taught them and their youth group leaders taught them, that if you are abstinent and never think about sex and never do anything by yourself or never explore sexually, you don't do any of that stuff. But after you get married, it'll be amazing sex. And there is this leap that you somehow make, and it works for everybody. Like, whether or not they were explicitly told that, that is what they were led to believe. And these women who spoke to the reporter for this article said, I mean, I know that's not the case. And it's disturbing to me that women who grew up, grow up in this culture are not told about the complications of that. I'm going to, here's an excerpt from the article. And it's quoting a woman named Christy who did not want to share her last name. According to Christy, the mandates did not end once she was safely ensconced in marriage. When she, was, when she wed at 26, she was a virgin. She believed sex was only for marriage, and then God would bless it. 
taught never to refuse sex with their husband unless it was an absolute necessity, and paired with her then-husband's demands, Christy was left submitting to what felt like obligatory sex and guilt over how miserable she felt. She felt like, I mean, I'm, I'm talking now, she felt like she just had to make herself available to her husband at all times, no matter what, and even though it felt abusive and not fun at all for her, at least at certain times, she was led to believe this is what you got to do. It's part of marriage. Your husband can have you whenever he wants. And there's a book that's quoted in the article. It's called The Great Sex Rescue. It's by an author, Sheila Gregoire. It underscores, I'm quoting from the article, it underscores the importance of women enjoying sex, of intimacy and mutuality, while also noting that sexual pain rates that are unrelated to childbirth are higher among Christians. Again, this book is saying that women in uh, Christians who get married have pain when it comes to sex more often than women who are not raised in those same environments. Um, that same article says 6.8% of the women they spoke to had such bad sexual pain that penetration was impossible. And then it quotes the book, they've done what they're supposed to do. Speaking of evangelical Christian women, they get married, sex hurts, and they don't even realize that this is something that other people deal with, so they don't even know they can get help. And that, I think, is kind of the takeaway for me from reading that article. I mean, I have my own problems with purity culture as a whole for reasons any longtime listener has heard many times over. But in this case, it's how many of these problems are, one, not problems. They're not unusual. They're certainly not unique to to women in those relationships. But they are led to believe sex is going to be perfect and wonderful as soon as you uh, hear the magic words at the altar— that they think if anything goes wrong or that they're not enjoying themselves, that there's something wrong with them. And that is the problem that needs to be addressed here. Like, you, I don't care if anyone chooses to be abstinent until marriage um, for whatever reasons you have. The problem is that these women, especially in these purity culture bubbles, they are taught to fear sex as dirty and shameful if anything happens before marriage. They are taught that sex during marriage is going to happen, it's going to be perfect, and that is misleading. Because if you certainly, if you haven't experimented with your partner before marriage, why would you be compatible after marriage? It takes time. It, I mean, joking aside, it takes effort to figure out what you like, what your partner likes, but you don't get that chance to experiment when you're in these bubbles before marriage. And even if you wanted to, you could wait until marriage, but even then there's going to be this period where you are learning about each other and figuring out what you like and what the other person likes that is going to take some time to make it enjoyable for both of you. So the belief that these women... Are, I mean, this, this idea that these things that these women are taught, it's so harmful. And kudos to all the women who are speaking out about it, who remain Christian, but understand the harm that comes with purity culture and not comprehensive sex education and things like that. Like, you don't just flip a switch on your wedding night. And they need to be taught that, and they need to understand that. And I've seen so many of those, like, girls-defined YouTube videos where they just... They teach girls all these things that all these women are saying, please don't do that. Don't teach them these things. They are harmful. 
and you are telling them not to date and experiment when they are younger and not to have boyfriends or to cross a certain line with those boyfriends before marriage. And teaching that doesn't have to be like, there is a way to teach comprehensive sex ed in a way that doesn't violate anything the Bible says. You could be religious and you can even be abstinent, but there are things that Christians, young Christians need to be taught. It's not happening right now. And that is disturbing. I mean, you can at least learn about your body without doing anything physical, but they don't get that option. You can read about the issue without sinning. The options are out there. And if Christians are not taught this, and if youth group leaders and pastors don't take a stance on this in a responsible way, they are doing a disservice to everyone who goes to their church. Um, There's a woman we talk about, uh, a mommy-shaming blogger, Lori Alexander, who blogs as the Christian wife. I'm sorry, the transformed wife. And she writes a lot about all the things that we are saying, please don't teach them that. She said, you know, women should just suck it up and have sex with their husbands whenever he wants it. And she honestly defended that sentence by saying, women, just suck it up because, quote, how long does it take? Suggesting that, look, it'll just take two minutes of your time. Just give it up. Do it whenever your husband wants. And, of course, the response to that is, uh, if that's what sex is like for you, maybe you're not doing it right. Anyway, and by the way, there are biblical arguments that could that talk about sex in a positive way. You could take it out of context and say, look, see, the Bible defends sex positivity. I don't even, I'm not even talking about that right now. It's just the purity culture and how it ruins so many lives. And again, if you're not going to listen to me talk about that as an atheist and, and as a man, please listen to the Christian women who are saying the exact same things, who are not saying Christian women need to not be abstinent. They're not saying you need to do anything that you think violates your faith. What they are arguing for is is more understanding and more discussion about this so that women in those cultures don't feel trapped or alone afterwards, which I that feels like a totally sensible thing to ask for. The question is whether people in a position of power will actually do anything about it. All right, one last story for you all because... I'm sick of hearing my own voice through these headphones. Uh, Sarah Palin, remember her? She's in the news again because she was recently doing an interview uh, with a new apostolic reformation leader, uh, whatever. It was an interview on like a church stage. And they asked her, would you ever consider running for Senate? Because Lisa Murkowski's seat in Alaska is up in 2022. So, you know, maybe she'll run again. Maybe she'll run as a Republican. Last time I think she won as a write-in vote because the Republican was insane. Um, But there is an open question as to who's running for the Senate seat. And we've talked about one woman who is a fundamentalist Christian, speaks in tongues, says crazy things, who is running in, who's trying to primary Lisa Murkowski from the right. So they asked Sarah Palin, hey, would you consider running for Senate? And here's what Sarah Palin said. If God wants me to do it, I will. I'm going to stop the quote there because that part is enough. She also said Christians would have to do a better job supporting her than they did during her run for the White House in 2008. And this kind of makes me feel old, but if you don't remember what 2008 was like, John McCain picked Sarah Palin as his vice presidential candidate because he thought it would generate some excitement for his losing campaign, and it wasn't going well. And it turned out she didn't know anything about anything. Like, charismatic speaker knew how to rile up the base, 
but didn't know the first thing about governing, even though she was the governor of Alaska, didn't know facts about the world. I mean, ignorance was her kind of thing. That's why people made fun of her. And the weird thing is now that's kind of the whole Republican Party. But at the time, she was certainly an anomaly, certainly at the presidential level, running with someone like John McCain, known for being one of the kind of more sensible Republicans. So thank goodness she lost. And the funny thing is, even if she ran in the primary, there's no guarantee she would win, even in Alaska, because she's there are other batshit crazy right-wing candidates vying to fill the Sarah Palin role. I mean, I don't know. The Trump administration might have been the best thing to happen to her future hypothetical campaign because the bar to be a functional you know, a candidate for any nation or statewide elected office, the bar is really low for the Republican Party. And Palin would fit right in with today's Republican Party. But I don't know if uh she would be doing enough (laughs) i don't know i don't know if uh shabaka or whoever the uh nominee in alaska right now the radical republican one is gonna win i think lisa murkowski would probably win that uh primary which would shut out sarah palin if she ran but like i also kind of want to know if sarah palin is saying if god wants me to do it i will didn't god send you the message in 2008 i mean Doesn't that mean anything? Why do you think God would be saying yes to you now? Like just when you're off stage and just when your family's personal crazy life is no longer making headlines, like you could just just disappear from the public stage. And here she is saying, yeah, sure. Just maybe I'll go right into it if a voice in my head tells me I should. Um, I mean, of all the things to think about when it comes to 2022, Sarah Palin was not one of the ones I was thinking about until this week. Okay. Anyway, if you want to, uh, next week, Jessica will be back. If you like what you're listening to again, please go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast to support the show. There's a link to our private Facebook group in the show notes. And I do not want to talk by myself for another hour next week. So I look forward to having Jess back and thank you for listening. We'll, uh, I will see you next week and I won't be the only person here. Have a good one.